Things are not as they seem. The things that you see, the world around you, isn't exactly what's actually there. Your mind is constantly filling in the gaps, making guesses, and painting a picture of a subjective reality. Of course, this is what your body and your brain need to do to survive. There would be no way to catch a softball if our brain didn't make some sort of guess where the ball is going. But sometimes our brain makes the wrong guess. And sometimes my subjective reality is not the same as your subjective reality. So what is real? Are our perceptions enough to make it real? Or is reality going to be constantly out of our grasp? This is Spark Dialogue Podcasts. You can find us at sparkdialogue.com, on Facebook and Twitter, or wherever you find your podcasts. Spark Dialogue tells the stories of science and technology and how they relate to philosophy, culture, art, and history. I'm your host, Elizabeth Fernandez. Today, we'll be talking a lot about how humans see the world around them. One really fun application of this is optical illusions. The supporters of this podcast will have access to some amazing optical illusions and some videos which give some illumination about how your brain really works. Supporters will also have access to a bonus mini-episode about animals. Do animals have subjectivity? Do they have beliefs? How can you even answer this question? You can access all of this by going to the Patreon page at patreon.com sparkdialogue. And if you're not a patron and you want to become one, you can join by going to the website sparkdialogue.com or the Patreon page at patreon.com sparkdialogue. Hi, my name is Jorge Morales, and I'm a provost postdoctoral researcher at Johns Hopkins University. So why do we have subjectivity in the first place? Why don't we just see the universe and the world around us exactly like it is? Is there some evolutionary benefit? First, we should take a deeper look at the difference between consciousness or just having a body that reacts to external stimuli. Is subjectivity a product of our consciousness? Let's imagine something like a bird. Now, we don't know what a bird is really thinking, but some argue that a bird acts like it does because its instincts are telling it to. A bird doesn't consciously fly over and decide to eat a worm. It acts because millions of years of bird evolution have programmed it to be able to eat that worm. So does a bird have subjectivity? In other words, do we need consciousness to be subjective? Why is there consciousness rather than just cognition or perception without any kind of subjective aspect? Why exactly we're conscious is, as I said, it's one of the biggest questions we can ask. Um, and it's not easy to demonstrate that having a subjectivity and inner life or a conscious awareness of our surroundings actually perform any kind of uh, or, or has any kind of benefit for our lives, for our evolutionary survival even. Certainly evolution uh, only cares about success and you can be successful in terms of uh, navigating the world and reproducing without any awareness. And that might be surprising because, at least for us humans, it feels like when we're not conscious, uh, we basically can't do anything or very little, it would seem. If you're completely unconscious, like when you're asleep or in a coma, you certainly don't seem to be able to do any kind of action or cognition but even in our daily lives, it seems like, you know, when you have a conversation, when you're listening to this podcast, for example, it will be very weird to say that you can do that unconsciously and still, still know what the podcast was about or uh, drive a car while you're unconscious or play soccer or have a conversation. And yet, uh, something that 
cognitive psychologists have found uh, in the last few decades is that there is a wealth of activities uh, that we can do while completely unconscious of the stimuli involved in those uh, tasks or activities. So, for example, you can certainly detect the presence of certain stimuli on a screen without being aware of the presentation of those stimuli. So, for example, let's say experimenters can show you a quickly displayed stimulus on a screen and then ask you whether there was something there or not. And even when you're not aware of seeing anything, uh, subjects consistently over many types of experiments uh, turn out to be you know, above chance at knowing when there was something on the screen and when not. And what is surprising is that sometimes uh, subjects and, and people can do even more sophisticated things like that. Sometimes they can detect stimuli, but sometimes they can discriminate stimuli too, not just telling you whether there was something or nothing, but they can also tell you whether there was, let's say, a green object or a red object. And the amount of things that humans can do, at least in these experimental conditions, without awareness is uh, outstanding. For example, there are experiments showing that you can understand the meaning of words, that you can do basic arithmetic, and even a very interesting paper shows that you can tell uh, experts who know how to play chess can tell whether uh, a quickly displayed image of a chessboard with a particular arrangement is a checkmate or not, despite the fact that they report being completely unaware of seeing any kind of checkboard, let alone where the pieces are arranged. So this suggests to us that consciousness, on one hand, seems very important. It makes us uh, who we are. It makes uh, the things that matter to us, uh, to us matter. So, for example, uh, feeling pleasure, feeling pain, uh, uh, enjoying a movie, enjoying our time out. All those things seem to be very intertwined with consciousness, and they are certainly very important for us. And at the same time, we have... All this evidence from evolutionary psychology and from psychology suggesting that consciousness might be way less important than we think for performing at least some perceptual and cognitive uh, tasks. Subjectivity seems like a really hard thing to study scientifically. After all, science is, by definition, objective. So how as a scientist do you even begin to study something like subjectivity? When subjectivity becomes the subject study of science, there seems to be like some kind of uh, short circuit there. And I think what it makes it really interesting to study subjectivity as a scientist, but also as a philosopher, is the fact that we can use some objective methods to understand the nature of our inner life, basically. And how we do that, it's, of course, challenging at times because unlike basically any other aspect of science where you can just probe the world and 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 see what basically what it gives you back when studying subjectivity when studying people's inner lives and conscious awareness what you're probing is people themselves and usually those reports uh, those subjective reports tend to be the thing that we want to discard but here we we, we really try to make them our object of study to understand something like subjectivity, we have to do something a bit unique. We can't just look at the problem one way. 
Jorge says that this problem is one that we need to approach in multiple different ways. These hard questions require an interdisciplinary approach. In order to have a full understanding of the world, of ourselves and our role in that world, we really have to take into account philosophical questions and philosophical methods. We have to make questions precise, which is something philosophers are really good at. We have to analyze those questions and the answers provided to those questions in a slow and thoughtful manner, which is the specialty of philosophers. But we also need sometimes empirical data to test those hypotheses and to test whether one or another answer is more likely to be true. And I think that when psychologists, neuroscientists, and philosophers talk to each other, collaborate, and try to devote, let's say, their full power, their full intellectual power into answering these questions, um, the research just becomes much better and the answers become much more interesting. And it might feel, it's a little bit weird for me to say it because that's what I do. But I really do believe that it's true, not just for the kind of thing that I do, but for things that relate, let's say, for chemistry and metaphysics, like what is a molecule or what is what counts as an atom might be a deeply empirical question, but it's also a metaphysical question about how we carve up nature at its joints, as it were. And this could be true, f- too, for medical research, for example. Uh, there have been successful collaborations between um, cancer scientists and uh, philosophers trying to provide a more faithful, more um, useful classification of types of diseases, for example. How do we study subjectivity in practice? Well, it involves a lot of asking people how they see the world and figuring out a way to tease apart what it all means. When you try to understand how people experience the world, you have to find a way of basically making them reveal to you how they are experiencing the world, sometimes by asking them literally, but also sometimes without asking them explicitly, such that uh, you can infer what their inner life is, how they are experiencing the world, how they are seeing their surroundings, explicitly ask them to do so. And this is important because, of course, people have biases, people have uh, theories about why they are in an experiment, for example. So they might want to please the experimenter and they might want to just give you an answer that you're expecting from them. And that could skew your results in ways that, that, that will make the science way less interesting. So yeah, the challenges for studying subjectivity are explicitly asking subjects. Sometimes it requires like cross-validating Subjects reports with indirect measures that are more objective, like how long they take to answer a question or how accurate they are when doing a task. And sometimes that also means like finding a mesh between, let's say, all these psychological measures about how subjects, how they behave and how they respond to a task with uh, neuroscientific uh, measures as well, like recording their brain activity as they are performing a task. And once you have all these different bits of information of what, let's say, their inner lives might be like, how they react 
to the world when they are asked to experience it and how their brains are operating while they're doing that, you might a, a picture starts emerging about what the nature of their conscious life is. Jorge and his colleagues found a clever way to measure subjectivity and how it relates to eyesight. Here's how it works. Picture how your eye sees. An image is projected onto your cornea in two dimensions. But when we look around the world, it doesn't look like a photograph. We see the world in stunning 3D accuracy. But how? Our brain takes signal from both eyes and then interprets both of these images together. When a camera captures an object or when an artist paints on a canvas, on a canvas, they have to take 3D information about the object in the world and transform it or smush it into a 2D surface, either of the lens of the camera or the canvas. And our eyes do something similar when light bounces off 3D objects and hit our concave retinas. Let's imagine that we see a coin, but instead of seeing it face on, we see it tilted at an angle. In two dimensions, it looks like an oval. And this is what our brain sees. An artist painting a coin seen head-on will need to draw a circle on the canvas. Whereas that same exact object drawn from a side, from an angle, would not reject a circle on the canvas. Like the artist will need to paint if they want to be Uh, realistic, they will paint an ellipse on the canvas because coins, when they are seen from an angle, they project an elliptical shape. But when we look at a coin on its side, we know in our brains and in our hearts, it's a circle. We can picture its circleness, even though that's not what we're actually seeing. This is thanks to our brain. Now, for a long time, cognitive scientists have assumed that the brain's main or maybe even its only job when perceiving the world is to create an image of that three-world environment that it's out there, the way it truly is. The brain gets rid of that initial 2D projection, transforms that information, makes a series of inferences, and creates a representation of what the world truly looks like. So if a coin projects... Uh, seen at an angle, projects an ellipse on your retinas, the brain takes that information, combines it with what it knows about the environment, uh, makes some computations about how the light is being reflected, what the depth cues are, how the subject is moving, and so on and so forth, and eventually creates a representation that allows us to see round coins as round, which is what we do. We see coins as being round, even though we basically never see them as a, at an exact head-on angle projecting a circular outline on our eyes. However, philosophers have asked for literally hundreds of years, at least since Locke and Hume, whether it is really the case that we only see the objective world as it is. Could it be possible that we see the world, objects, uh, in a way that retain their perspective the perspective with which we encounter them? In other words, is it possible that despite our brains kind of inferring what the world really is based on these 2D images that hit our eyes, could it be possible that those 2D images kind of stay with us in a way that 
that make the perception of the world something very different from what it is like to take a picture or to draw a painting on a canvas. And based on these questions, we, we put this philosophical intuition to empirical test. We asked, is it the case that when we see the world, this isn't separate from our perspective? And what we showed was that no matter what you do, human participants, even though they successfully saw the world objectively as it really is, in other words, they saw the coins as being really round, their behavior was also affected by how the world appeared to them from a particular point of view. Let's go back to our tilted coin. What happens when reality tries to trick us? What happens if, instead of a tilted coin, there's an actual oval? Can our brain tell the difference? Enter the coin experiment. Over the course of nine experiments, where we use both uh, computer-generated, super-realistic images and also real objects in the world that were just in front of subjects, they were shown pairs of three-dimensional disks or coins. And one of the coins was always a true oval, right? So in the real world, it was a true elliptical, it had a true elliptical shape. And the other, the other object was always circular in the real world circular disk. And their subject, the subject's task was like really simple. They only had to select the true oval. And these may seem easy because, of course, there are two objects that were presented, you know, for sufficient time. A circle and, a, and, a, and an oval are very different. But here's the trick. Sometimes the circular coin was presented head-on, so it looked very different from the oval coin. And sometimes the circular coin was presented, rotated at an angle such that they projected exactly the same elliptical shape as the true oval. But remember that the cues were very realistic, and in the case of the real-world experiment, there were literally real objects in front of them. So the circular rotated coins, they didn't look like ovals in a sense to subjects. They were very good at detecting the actual true oval. Uh, their performance was uh, almost at perfect, so they had no confusion on one hand. But on the other hand, what we found over and over again was that when the circular coin next to the oval was rotated and hence it projected an elliptical shape, subjects had more trouble finding the true oval. They had a little bit more of a, of a delay at finding the target oval coin. And on one hand, this might not seem too surprising because of course, well, the rotated coin might look like an oval in some way, you know, in another sense, that rotation might have affected how they saw things. But if the th hypothesis that has driven cognitive science for a long time was correct, that is, that vision, vision's only goal is to present us with objective objects, how, how objects out there truly are, then a rotated circular coin and a head-on circular coin should just look circular to us right? Because that's their objective shape. And that's not what we found. We found that despite looking objectively circular, they also look elliptical in some way such that it became harder for subjects to detect the true oval uh, in their surroundings. I offered myself as a guinea pig and did this experiment. I saw if I could tell the difference between a tilted coin and an oval. And for the most part, I could. 
Not all the time, but I found a workaround. In some of the images of the coin, I could see a shadow that indicated the edge of the coin. Look for the shadow and you find the coin. Ah, but this made me wonder. Knowledge that the coin makes a shadow is part of my experience. Sure, it's basic experience, but it's knowledge that my brain has acquired over the course of my life. Now, this is pretty basic experience, something that we all have. But you could imagine a similar experiment designed that uses information only some people have acquired over the course of their life. Suddenly, you have a way to illustrate that some people see their world around them differently. On one hand, that's exactly how vision allows us to perceive the world, even though it receives uh, actually highly impoverished information from it. If you think about it, we don't see the back part of objects, for example, and we don't see them as just presenting facades to us. We see them as fully inflated, volumetric uh, 3D objects. We don't see, you know, the shadows of, uh, if you see a, a wall, a white wall, it very rarely will be completely homogeneously illuminated. It will have shadows here and there. It will have, it will have like variation in, in how it reflects light because of the normal surrounding environment. But Despite that, despite it reflects different wavelengths of light, we don't experience a white shadow wall as being different colors. We learn through evolutionary history. We have some principles uh, ingrained in our vision system. And we also learn through actual experience from babies and so on. We experience, we learn that there are certain cues of what's the best way of interpreting the world. So what is real? Should we say that the only thing that is really real is the actual physical object, the thing in front of us? Or is what we think we see real too? Is the image in our eye real in the same way a photograph is real? Part of the goal of these experiments and the philosophical question of what do things look like, like, for example, what does a tilted coin look like? Part of what we're trying to ask is like, what does it look like to the subject, like to us as humans who are moving around in the world. So even though we think that that to the projection with which perception begins, we don't want to say that we're actually seeing that retinal projection. I think that perception or vision in particular happens at a kind of like higher level, if you like, of processing. So, for example, the images in the retina, first of all, we have two of them, and we certainly don't see things double, at least not most of the time. And because of the optics of the eye, it actually, those images are inverted, as people know. So, And we don't see things on their heads. And again, they are flat, and we don't see things as being flat, and so on and so forth. So what we see is a reconstruction that the brain does of what the world looks like. And I think that the question is, does that reconstruction puts us in touch with the real objects out there in the world in a way that we can comfortably say that what we're seeing is those objects out there? On top of that, not just asking like, what are we seeing? So... You can ask, are we seeing our retinal images? Are we seeing our internal representations? Or are we seeing the objects out there? Those are three questions one can ask. 
almost no one says or thinks that we see a retinal images per se, but there's a huge philosophical literature trying to ask or trying to solve the question about whether are we aware of those representations in our heads? Is that what the object of perceptions is? And most philosophers tend to disagree with that. Most philosophers tend to think of those inner representations that build and, and you know, the, the outcome of the brain's uh, laborious uh, job of kind of telling us what's out there. That's not the object of our perception. That's kind of the tool with which we become aware of the world out there. Really what we're perceiving, it's the world. But then there's a further question, which is, are those representations that the brain is creating for us to experience the world, are they a faithful, let's say, copy of what it's out there, really? Is it really, even if you accept that those representations truly are putting us in touch with the world out there, and that's what we're perceiving, you could still doubt whether we're perceiving, let's say, those objects in their full glory, right? In, in its true nature, are you really seeing the world as it is? And I think that on one hand, that seems almost counterintuitive, right? It's, it's, it's very hard to find oneself in a, either in a skeptic scenario when we think like everything around us is not real or it's distorted or we're being tricked, especially when you're not doing philosophy or you're not doing science. When you walk around, the world just seems like it's directly given to you, right? Like it seems like we're in direct touch with the world as it truly is. But then when you think about it, when you, especially when you think about how, not just how neuroscience works and how our brain is reconstructing the world, but also when you compare ourselves to other animals, for example, that have some of them similar, but slightly different neural architectures. But also when you think about animals that have like completely radically different perceptual apparatus, you think it, it makes you wonder how plausible or how sustainable it is to say that the world is, as we experience it, it's exactly the way the world is. This doesn't have to bring you into a skeptical scenario where you don't believe anything of what you see, where everything that you see, think is uh, fake or distorted. But it does put you in a position where you have to ask yourself how objective really our perception of the world is. It is mediated by our sensoria. It is mediated by how the brain processes the information delivered by these sensoria. And I think that once our senses and our brain mechanisms are taken into account, we're left in a position where we can say that the world is given to us in a certain way and that that way is just the best we can do to know the world objectively, at least perceptually. Then we have cognition and reason and we can make inferences about the world. But at least perceptually, we are probably limited by the way our brain works to how things can seem to us. In other words, because we can only see the world with our eyes and we can only hear the world with our ears, we can we cannot go over and above that experience, at least perceptually, right? Again, once we have cognition and once we put reason into play, there are certain things that we can infer about the world that are uh, either not given to us in perception because perception 
it's limited, or maybe we can even go appearances and, and discover that we were being prey of maybe an optical illusion or a complete misrepresentation due to how our brain processes the world. And of course, even reason will ultimately be limited by, you know, the way our brain works and what we can know. So it's hard to know exactly what it's out there, I will say. Everything fits together. Objective reality, what our eye actually sees, our experiences, and our beliefs. This forms our version of reality, the subjective world around us. You've probably seen the difference between what is really there and what you think is there in a very concrete example, optical illusions. Here we're shown that how our brain interprets what our eyes are seeing isn't always right. Optical illusions are fascinating. Sometimes they're fun and sometimes they break your brain a little bit. And the reason they're a good tool, it's not because they break down something, although that's part of it. But it's, it's more than that. It's because they break down things in a very specific way. They break down things in such a way that reveals what our brain is trying to do. And interestingly, that's very hard to learn and it's very hard to investigate. It's very hard to know how our brain arrives at the, let's say, conclusions or inferences that it does. The brain is not like a camera, or the eyes are not like a camera, right? If anything, vision is like a camera plus Photoshop plus a deep neural network plus a very smart curator that uses their past experience to stitch everything together. Optical illusions are interesting because they makes us experience the world in a way that our brain wasn't kind of designed to do or when our brain hits some kind of limit. Think about the Mueller liar illusion. I bet your listeners have seen it before. It's two parallel lines of exactly the same length, except that one of them has two kind of like arrowheads pointing outwards and the other one has those exact same arrowheads pointing inwards. What's fascinating about that is that those lines, the horizontal parallel lines, do not look the same length. And it doesn't matter that you know about it. It doesn't matter how many times you've seen this illusion. It doesn't matter if you're a vision scientist. They still look different. And that also tells us something about vision. It tells us that it might be, at least some aspects of it, might be closed to revision, let's say. They are not susceptible to what we believe. They are not susceptible to what we know. We just are presented with the visual system things we should be presented with. And there's another example from your everyday life, but perhaps one you may not have thought about before. When you catch a ball, your brain is doing a lot of projecting where that ball is going to go. It has to. Consider this. It actually takes time for information from our eyes to reach our brain on the order of a few tens of milliseconds. Then it takes our brains about 120 milliseconds to process that information. Now that doesn't sound like much, but consider this. A softball can travel about three meters in that time. Because of this, our brain has to fill in the gaps. It has to guess where that softball is going. Otherwise, we would never be able to catch a ball at all. When Serena Williams is about to hit the tennis ball, 
there is no way her visual system can process, you know, frame by frame as a as a camera would do exactly where the ball would be. It certainly visually processes the ball, but it also does a bunch of other things. It predicts where the ball is going to land. It assumes certain things about ball movement based on her thousands of hours of training. And that's something that our brains do a lot too. We kind of fill in the gaps, not just of what uh, what's out there, but the informational gaps. What we experience, it's very hard to compute. It's very hard to see the world in its full rich detail as we do or as we seem to do. With the kind of brain that we have, we don't understand very well. We have billions of neurons literally, but it still seems kind of fast. It seems like we're too adaptable, too flexible for things being processed serially as they arrive. And as I said before, the information is actually quite bad. So what the brain seems to be doing is some kind of inference. We use information that we have about the world and about our environment and stitch it together to the information that we're getting in real time from the environment, that little information that we're getting. And together, the brain helps us like create the world in its full glory, if you like. And that usually works pretty well. We're pretty successful at navigating the world. We usually don't, I don't know, bump into objects that seem to appear out of nowhere, although sometimes that might happen. We don't we don't fall all the time because we don't see variations on the floor or we don't like imagine things that are not there or seem to see things that are not there all the time. But we do that often. All those things, all those things that we might consider as mistakes or errors or even hallucinations, those things happen. And they happen because of the tricks that the brain use to present us with what's out there. This isn't the only example of the way our brain fills in the gaps. Our brains don't just guess where an object would go, but they can also paint the world around us. A recent phenomenon that has been studied a lot, it's this thing called subjective inflation. Our eyes have a distribution of receptors and something that you learn in physiology class, it's that the color receptors of the eye are not equally distributed across the retina. We have lots of cones, color-sensitive cells at the center of our eye in the what it's called the fovea. But once we move away from the center, those cones, the density of those cones decrease radically. And that, at least in principle, should give us a physiological explanation of, or, or it should predict, we should predict based on the density of the cones that the periphery of our vision should be in black and white, or it should be extremely desaturated, right? And at least most people, most people's experience is not like this, not at all. At least to me and to many people and subjects in the lab, the world seems equally saturated, equally colorful. But the phenomenon of subjective inflation explains why this is the case. It seems like our brain is compensating for the lack of receptors and processing power devoted in our visual areas to that peripheral regions of, of our visual field by, I'm going to use this in quotes, but like, quote, unquote, filling in or making up what should be there. And the way it's done is fascinating. It involves 
statistics, like the general statistics of the environment using uh, predictive power of what might be there or how things might be or how they have been. Of course, we don't know enough or uh, about subjective inflation works, but it literally tells us that what we see is a reconstruction to some extent, or it's a, it's a laborious process of mixing true information with expectations, with uh, memory, and so on and so forth. Michael Cohen and colleagues, a psychologist at Amherst uh, University, recently published a paper where they asked subjects to wear virtual reality goggles, right? And what Cohen and colleagues did is fascinating. They presented subjects with videos, normal videos, fully colorful, and slowly it started desaturating the periphery of those videos. But what they were doing is that they were kind of eye-tracking where the subject was looking. So what the periphery was would change as the subject's eyes were moving. So if a subject was looking to the left, let's say, and focusing on the left part of the video, the right part of the video would become black and white. And only a little tiny portion of where the subject was focusing their eyes on was kept in color. And then when the eyes moved to the right, then the right had a little portion that was color and the left became completely desaturated, like completely black and white. And what's fascinating is that a very small proportion of subjects actually noticed that this was happening. In some cases, like 90% of the screen was black and white and a vast amount of subjects did not notice notice that they were presented with a black and white scene. And that's because of the way our brains work. It seems like the periphery is not fully processed. It's mostly inferred. It's inflated. This is why we call this phenomenon subjective inflation. And to me, this is just mind-blowing. It's mind-blowing that this is how our vision works. This is how we experience the world. And at the same time, and to a large extent, that these predictions are accurate or accurate enough such that we can navigate the world successfully. Do we make mistakes? Our visual system sees the world wrongly? And I think that that's very, um, in a way, relative, right? What's the standard against which we compare right and wrong for a visual system? If you think about the visual system as a camera, that it's going to just record every single pixel exactly and as faithfully as it can, then sure, we, we don't see correctly the world. We make just a lot of mistakes. In part because it's a reconstruction, not a faithful, direct representation, but even those reconstructions uh, often are flawed. But if you think about correctness or being accurate as a mixture of actually representing what's out there, but also doing so in a useful way that it's not too costly and that allows you to navigate the world and survive as a species and as an individual, then it's not so obvious to me that we see the world wrongly, right? We are pretty efficient at perceiving our environment, at least with respect to what we need. We're able to move our eyes around. So if we need actual faithful information, we can just focus on it. And in the meantime, we really don't need 
that much information in the periphery, our brain can just take care of it as opposed to actually having to process it every single bit. This is something that researchers working on precisely VR environments have leveraged in a very clever way. If you can track where the subject is looking, you can know what part is in focus and what part is in periphery of the video that you're presenting them. And if you know that, you don't have to present them with the full-blown, beautiful process video. For example, if you're doing, if you're playing a video game with beautiful graphics and maybe playing in real time with other people also using VR sets, that requires a lot of computational power, right? You will need like a massive computer, uh, very powerful GPU, CPUs, lots of memory. Uh, it might not be fast enough and so on and so forth. But if you only need to render in real time, super sharp, beautiful images in a very small portion at the center of the eye. And then as the images move around, uh, away from the center and into the periphery, you only need to create like a kind of the, just give the gist of what it's going on. Just a very, let's say blurry, not very sharp, not very well processed, not very defined image. And the subject is not going to notice that difference. Then you can create like a super high definition uh, video and, and game experience without like drying up or your computational power. Okay, but get this. Our eyes aren't the only things that are fooling us. It turns out there are other areas of our life where perception is clouding our reality. Let's think about immaterial things. For example, time passing. We've all experienced a situation where we were bored out of our minds. The seconds seem to drag by. And when we're having fun, it seems like the day is over in a heartbeat. Our perceptions color our reality all the time when it comes to things like this. Another example is stereotypes. Or how diehard Republicans and far-left Democrats can see the world so differently, it seems like they aren't even experiencing the same reality. There is this interesting intersection of vision science and what you could call social science, or more broadly speaking, just our political life. Do our beliefs, our belief systems affect literally how we see the world? Like literally change, to go back to the camera metaphor, does it change the film that is presented before our eyes as we open our eyes, how we think about people, what part of the political spectrum we occupy, and so on and so forth. For example, there is research that has been done trying to argue that if you listen to words related to uh, old age, that sometimes makes you walk slower. Or if you literally have beliefs about being tired, you might see things that require you to, let's say, climb like a hill as being steeper. And now this research has been criticized, and it's unclear that our beliefs can affect vision in that way. Like our beliefs can change literally the images that we're presented with uh, when we open our eyes. What we have been trying to study, it's something slightly different. It's not so much about a question whether our beliefs or stereotypes of what we think about other people or other groups of people can affect literally how our eyes see the world. But it's a question about how the way we see the world can interact with how we treat other people. 
or what our beliefs about other people are. So something we try to do, and this is something we did in uh, collaboration also with another philosopher uh, now at Rutgers, uh, Austin Baker, where she had this idea. Isn't it the case that when we have when we hold some stereotypes against certain groups, it's kind of harder to to interact with them. Like if you're a racist person that holds like racist beliefs about, let's say, black people, often you can imagine that their interactions with them aren't smooth, right? And And literally like they might feel uncomfortable talking to them or looking at them. Or if you're a misogynist, you might have some trouble like, interacting with women, especially if they are in a position of power. But Austin's idea was, what if it's these affectations of stereotypes go even deeper? What if it it's not just that you feel uncomfortable because you, your racist beliefs get activated or because you are thinking like, oh, I don't want to be in this room with this person I think less of. But what if it's like even a more basic mechanism such that you kind of like short circuit for a tiny little bit when you see people, for example, that defy your stereotypes. Like if you hold a stereotype that doctors are mostly men or that men doctors are better than doctors who are women, when you encounter a doctor who's a woman, does it affect how you process visually this doctor? Like, not your beliefs about her capacity or not how you interpret her as a professional, but literally how fast you process her facial features or how fast you process the color of her hair, for example. The color of her hair is completely orthogonal to her being a doctor or completely orthogonal to her being a woman. And yet, maybe if someone defies your stereotypes, you are troubled or your visual system is just like, you know, like it just gets like a little knock over and, and it just has a harder time doing this other task that it's completely visual, completely unrelated to the stereotype. And that's what we found in a series of experiments that when people were shown stereotype defi- uh, defying images like women uh, doctors or male nurses, for example, they had a little delay at responding a super basic question about the photograph, like, for example, where their shoulders were pointing in a headshot, like just to the left or to the right, completely irrelevant to the stereotype. And yet it seems like when we perceive people that defy our stereotypes about them, it's not just something that we believe, or it's not something that it's completely isolated, but it seems like Again, to use uh, Austin Baker's terminology, it, it seems to have a far reach. It seems like the stereotype reaches out, not just to the belief system, but also to other parts of our uh, mental life affecting them. So what is really real? Thanks to subjectivity, it may be very hard to answer that question. But even though you and I might not see the world in exactly the same way, Subjectivity has helped us throughout evolution get this far. Our subjectivity is making it possible for us to exist in a complex, ever-changing world. It's the tool that helps us process everything without overwhelming our brains. So maybe our subjectivity isn't such a bad thing after all. 
Spark Dialogue Podcast is produced by me, Elizabeth Fernandez. You can find us at the web at sparkdialogue.com, on Facebook and Twitter, or any of your podcasting platforms. Remember, if you're a patron of this podcast, to check out the Optical Illusions and the mini-episode at patreon.com sparkdialogue. Thanks for joining us today, and we'll see you in two weeks for another episode. Some of the background music you heard was produced by me. Others are clips from The Long Goodbye by John Pasden, Uke Sounds by Airtone, and Mr. Wazi by Ribeiro. More information about these songs and links can be found in the show notes at sparkdialogue.com.